Well, if you would turn uh, with me in your Bibles to Amos uh, chapter 8. Amos chapter 8. And this evening we're going to look at the whole of this uh, chapter. And so I'll begin uh, reading then from verse 1 of Amos 8. This is what the Sovereign Lord showed me, a basket of ripe fruit. What do you see, Amos? he asked. A basket of ripe fruit, I answered. Then the Lord said to me, the time is ripe for my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. In that day, declares the Sovereign Lord, The songs in the temple will turn to wailing. Many, many bodies flung everywhere. Silence. Hear this, you who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land, saying, when will the new moon be over, that we may sell grain and the Sabbath be ended, that we may market wheat? Skimping on the measure, boosting the price, And cheating with dishonest scales, buying the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, selling even the sweepings with the wheat. The Lord has sworn by himself the pride of Jacob, I will never forget anything they have done. Will not the land tremble for this and all who live in it mourn? The whole land will rise like the Nile. It will be stirred up and then sink into the river of Egypt. In that day, declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your religious festivals into mourning and all your singing into weeping. I will make all of you wear sackcloth and shave your heads. I will make that time like mourning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. The days are coming, declares the Sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land. Not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord. But they will not find it. In that day, the lovely young women and strong young men will faint because of thirst. Those who swear by the sin of Samaria, who say, as surely as your God lives, Dan, or as surely as the God of Beersheba lives, they will fall, never to rise again. This is God's word. Well, I've called this uh, sermon, uh, The End of the Line. And that's because in Amos chapter 8, Although it's not the end of the the book of Amos, it is the end, if you like, of the line for God's people. Uh, The the book of Amos has been a series of prophecies of of judgment that's coming. Uh, And really, as we get to chapter 8, it's like uh, the end of a train journey. When you're you're on a train and you get to the last stop on that line, uh, the train um, announcement will say something along the lines of, this train terminates here. This is the end of the journey. 
There's nowhere else to go. This is the finish. And on this kind of train that we've been on in Amos, uh, the people of God really have been at lots of stops where they've been able, if they like, to get off the train by repenting. Uh, But really, God's people have stayed on, and now they've reached the end of the line. And the end of the line is not just a nice sit in a train in a station. No, the end of the line is that they face God's judgment and there is no way back. And throughout this book, we've been warned again and again that judgment is coming. There's been opportunity for repentance, but here we are at the end of the line. Now, there's an obvious impact here if you are not a Christian. If you've not repented of your sin, there is an obvious response that's called for here, and that is, you will reach the end of the line if you do not repent, and so do so. But many of us here are Christians, and we might be thinking, well, what's this got to do with me? Uh, I've, I've repented of my sin, but don't be so sure that this has nothing to do with us. We need to be aware of sin in our lives, don't we? We need to continue to come back day by day to the cross and live a life day by day of repentance. Because the day that we think sin doesn't matter anymore is a very dangerous place to be, isn't it? We see here that Israel has reached the end of the line. And there is a warning for all of us here to repent of our sin. And we see at the beginning of chapter 8 how God is pointing to the end of the line when the judgment is decreed. Really, we see this in the first three verses. Uh, We're in a section where we read uh, the phrase a lot, the sovereign Lord. If you remember, we've spoken of this before. The name sovereign Lord, it appeared six times in the first six chapters of Amos. But now it appears Eight time, uh, 11 times sorry, in the last two chapters, and it speaks of God's rule over his world and over his people. And here, the sovereign Lord is ruling through his judgment. And this vision is a little bit like the plumb line in that it has a finality to it. Amos is shown a basket of ripe fruit in verse 1, which he identifies at the beginning of verse 2. Now, the fruit scene is literally translated summer fruit. Now, you might be thinking, that sounds quite nice. When I think of ripe fruit, my instant thought is cake. Because once it goes past the time of eating, you can usually make it into something nice uh, of some kind of cake. But there's nothing nice about what Amos is seeing here. Uh, It's summer fruit because it's the last fruit in the calendar year. So in Israel, the calendar year of agriculture would run from September to August. And different crops were sown and reaped during different months of the year. And the summer fruit was the August crop. It was the last crop of the year, usually consisting of things like figs and grapes and pomegranates, all very nice things. But there is a play on the words in Hebrew here that we don't have in the English. So the Hebrew for summer fruits sounds very much like the word for end. And the NIV is helpful here. It gives us the meaning. The basket of ripe fruit means Israel is ripe for judgment. So you've got the end fruit and the end of the line, if you like. 
or ripe fruit, ripe for judgment. So that's, what, that's the picture that's going on here. They've reached the end. This is, this is it, termination time. And so look at the end of verse 2. Then the Lord said to me, the time is ripe, or the end has come, for my people, Israel. I will spare them no longer. So the fruit might have looked healthy and tasty. Summer fruits are very nice. But it was a sign that they might look nice, but they've reached the end of the line. The calendar has ended. The clock has run down. Judgment day is here. God is sparing them no longer. And he's used that kind of a phrase before. Uh, Look at chapter 7 and and verse 8. He says the same thing there with the plumb line. I will spare my people no longer. But literally, it translates as, I will pass over them no longer. And in Egypt, you may remember at the Passover, God passed over his people who trusted his word. They did not face the angel of death. But here, he will pass over none of them. There is no longer an opportunity for mercy. And then verse 3 describes what this day will be like. It will be a day of utter devastation, where songs of joy are turned to wailing. And the shock of it is shown in the way that the sentences of verse 3 are really short. (coughs) So look at verse 3, these short sentences. It goes like this. Many, many bodies flung everywhere. Silence. And the silence here is is of, of shock. Nothing can be said. It's like at the end of the passage you read in Romans 3, every mouth is is stopped. Nothing can be said. This judgment is decreed. It's the end of the line for the people of God. It's interesting that Amos does not get shown the exact time of the judgment. He's just told it's ripe. It's, It's very soon. And for us, if we reject God's offer of mercy then we can face this time ourselves at any time. And I think this again shows us the urgency, both of repenting ourselves and of sharing the gospel. Because you could say, if you like, that everybody is ripe. Everybody should be ready to meet the Lord. Because you could return at any time, Or the day of our death can be any moment, can't it? And so there is an urgency to turn to Christ. And so again, I say as we've said many times through Amos, turn to Jesus Christ. Because the time is short. You may very well be right now at the end of the line. Well, when God does judge... He doesn't do so without reason. And in Amos chapter 8, we see secondly that the judgment is deserved. And verses 4 to 8 give the reasons why Israel are facing this. What's interesting is that the reasons given sound very familiar to us if we've been following Amos because they've been heard before. In the beginning of the book of Amos, he speaks to the nations surrounding Israel and then turns to Israel itself, and he outlines all of their sins. And the sins we read about here are repeats of what he has said before. 
Now, this shows us that Israel has not listened. They haven't listened to the message. They haven't repented. And so now they've reached the end of the line. And there's a call, I think, here for us, isn't there, to to listen. How many times uh, do we hear the same thing over and over and over again and ignore it? There's a lesson here. Listen and obey the word of God. And so in verse 4, we see a kind of summary statement of, of what the people of Israel were doing. They trampled the needy and they did away with the poor of the land. So they exploited people for what they could get and they got rid of them when they were of no use. And this appalling treatment of the vulnerable is what was happening in verses 5 and 6 and and it gives examples of it. And what I want you to see, if you miss the detail, understand this. What's going on amongst God's people here is a complete selfishness. There is an utter self-serving, self-worship going on here. And if you like, if you, as a summary of sin, that's kind of a description, isn't it? Sin is, is self-serving. It's all about me and my, what I want. I am the one that matters. That's a, a kind of a good description of, of sin. doesn't matter about anybody else. doesn't matter about God. doesn't matter about my neighbor. It's about me. I want what I want. And that's what's going on in these verses here. So first of all, in verse, verse 5, we see that they, they put profit before worship. They put profit before worship. So they attended the religious festivals. Uh, the new moon, in verse 5, was a monthly one. And the Sabbath was a weekly one. And at these festivals, they would have to stop their work. It was a day, they had to have a day off to go to these festivals. And rather than worship, all they could think of was, when will this be over? When will this be over so that I can go back to earning money? When I can go back to exploiting the poor? When will this worship service be over? They, they did their duty of showing up, but they couldn't wait for it to finish. Now that's a warning, isn't it, to how we can approach church? Maybe some of you are, if you're honest, sitting there right now thinking, when will this be over? You don't have to nod. (laughs) But how often do we come to church because, well, it's just the expected thing to do. I'm, I'm, I'm a member, so I've got to fulfill my commitment. Or my parents are telling me to come. Or how many of us, when we are here, we might not be thinking of how can I exploit the poor, but you might be thinking... What's for lunch? You might be thinking, oh, I wish I was watching this program on Netflix, this, you know, this series I really want to be watching. You might even be thinking about work and thinking, I've got so much work to do. This is really eating into that time. I wish I was doing that. Or how often do you come to church to be served rather than to serve? Or how often do you avoid church and avoid prayer meeting just for trivial reasons. You you don't even bother to show up. Now, of course, all of you are here tonight, but some of you might be listening to this and and are not here for for a reason that's perhaps not not good. We need to 
to treat the worship of God seriously, don't we? And here, they're, they're putting their profit before their worship. They're, they're just wanting, to, wanting, wanting it to be over so they could get back to the marketplace and, and do the things that can profit themselves. And I think that's a good description of how, how we can be like this. We might not exploit the poor, but we want to profit ourselves. So rather than wanting to be here, we'd rather be somewhere else to profit ourselves. That's a danger for us, isn't it? Then uh, in, in, from, ver- from the second part of verse 5, we see three examples of putting profit before honesty. So they were skimping the measure, boosting the price, and cheating with dishonest scales. So skimping the measurement, they would weigh out a measure of grain, they would get the money for it, and then pour a bit of grain out and give them a, a lesser, lesser bag. That's skimping on the measure. Then boosting the price meant that they would overcharge for the grain. And then cheating with dishonest scales meant that they'd weigh the grain on the scales, but the scales were set in such a way that the price would be exactly what the seller wanted, regardless of what the scales uh, were, were saying. The scales weren't really accurate. And all of those offenses are spoken of against in Israel's law. But the merchants were just ignoring them. They put profit before honesty. They didn't care about their customers or their, their, their neighbors or the poor. They were about their own profit, so they were dishonest. And then in verse 6, we see some examples of putting profit before people. So the poor are purchased with silver. Interestingly, in chapter 2 and verse 6, the poor there are sold for silver And so here we see the other end of the transaction. And it's wrong both to buy somebody and it's wrong to sell somebody. And and really what was going on is people were being bought and sold uh, for even the price of a pair of sandals, which is nothing. The people were of no value in, in the eyes of those that were selling and buying. People were just exploited and treated terribly. And then at the end of verse 6, Notice there that they were diluting their products. Uh, The sweepings are the bits you would throw away, and they were putting the sweepings in with the wheat. Uh, When I first read that, the thing that comes to my mind, and maybe it's because I'm a bit weird, is uh, if you've ever read the Roald Dahl book Matilda, Mr. Wormwood put sawdust in the car engines to hide all the problems and and, uh, dampen the sound of all the rattling going on. Uh, That's the kind of thing that's going on here. Uh, they're, 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 they're selling rubbish uh, and pretending it's all good. Now, it is easy for us, I think, to come up with examples in the world where this kind of behavior goes on. You may be thinking in your mind of uh, the massive profits being made by energy companies or um, ex- ex- that kind of exploitation or sex trafficking or all those kind of things. And they are you know, bad things that go on in the world. But I want us to think about how this applies to us. How do we act in these kinds of ways? And it's when we think of the self-centeredness of what is going on here that I think helps us to see how this applies to us and how our self-centeredness impacts the lives of others. And all of us can play our part in acting like this. So it may be 
in an unwillingness to make sacrifices for others. If, you know, that we, we, don't want any, we don't want anything to cost us in terms of time or money or reputation, and so we don't help. That's a self-centeredness that impacts others. It may be that you choose to ignore the needs of those around you. Not thinking about them can stop you feeling like you need to help. It may be dishonesty in the workplace so that no one notices. Um, I remember when I was at work how easy it can be to cheat on my expenses. In fact, if I'm honest, it, it, it can be easy even now to, to, to cheat on expenses. Now, some of you are, in, are in, in business. Are your business deals morally right? Or are you skimping on measures, boosting the price, cheating on behalf of your employer or yourself? That kind of thing can go on, can't it? It may be shoddy workmanship, the equivalent of putting sweepings in with the wheat. Do you ever do anything like that? That can be, by the way, teenagers doing chores at home. Do you do your best, or do you just try and get away with a shoddy job? Just try and get away with it. That can be very self-centered. And you might think, well, how does that impact anybody else? Well, if you start behaving in that way now in the home, that will carry on into your adult life, and others will suffer for it. But a big area of exploitation that many are sadly involved in is the pornography industry. And I recently read a really helpful book by a pastor called Ray Ortland, who really shows how this is exploitation at its grossest level. I'm just going to give you one quote to show how this behavior of, 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 of watching pornography exploits and degrades women. I haven't got the quote, so I'm going to read it to you. It says, uh, Porn is a man saying to that woman on the screen, I don't care about you. I don't care about your personal story that got you onto this wretched porn site. I don't care about what will happen to you when the filming is over. How you'll drag yourself back to your apartment and get drunk just to stop feeling the pain. I don't care what you'll be facing tomorrow, which will be yet another day of this torment. I don't want to know what you're suffering. I don't even want to know your name. You don't matter. All that matters is me. It's powerful, isn't it? But it's so true. Every time that you look at those kinds of images, the, there are people behind those who are being exploited terribly. And they're feeding the people that are watching it. This is not something that was only going on in Amos's day. It's very much alive. And I think that last sentence by Ray Ortland, all that matters is me sums up what is wrong with Amos's society and I think can easily sum up ours as well. Now, all of us are guilty of this kind of behavior. 
Paul writes in Romans 3 verse 19, every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. We have all done this in various ways, haven't we? And God hates this kind of stuff and he will judge us for it. Look at verse 7. The Lord has sworn by himself the pride of Jacob. Uh, Interestingly, this is the third time the Lord has sworn by himself in Amos. And here he calls himself the pride of Jacob. And in chapter 6 and verse 8, notice there, if you just turn the page backwards, it says, I abhor the pride of Jacob, which indicated that the pride of Israel was not in what it should be, which was God, but was in themselves. God himself should be their pride, should be their most precious and important um, being, but he wasn't. But anyway, he, here he, he swears by himself, and look what he swears. I will never forget anything that they have done. Now, there are some wonderful scriptures that comfort us greatly when we read things like, I'll remember your sins no more. And they do comfort. They are wonderful. But they are for those who have put their trust in Jesus Christ, who has borne our sins. For those who have not trusted in Jesus Christ, God forgets nothing. For those that don't seek his mercy, God remembers all. And that's a terrifying thought, isn't it? God knows all that we have thought, said, and done in public and in secret. And when we don't trust him for salvation, all of that will be brought up on the judgment day. And we'll face verse 8. Will not the land tremble for this, and all who live in it mourn? The whole land will rise like the Nile. It will be stirred up and then sink like the river of Egypt. The land will tremble for this. This refers to verses 4 to 6. And it was well known that the river Nile would flood every year. And that illustration here is used to explain how Israel will be taken over by the flood of God's judgment. So the judgment is decreed, and then secondly, the judgment is deserved. And even though we may well be Christians, and we have sought forgiveness, and we are repenting, we still deserve God's judgment, don't we? But mercifully, we are those who have come to Jesus, who has borne that for us. He did not deserve it, but has died in our place. Now, we will come to look at Jesus. We are going to see him in a moment, but... Understand that we have to understand the bad news before the good news is good news, don't we? And we see here that we deserve the judgment of God and we'll face it. And we're in desperate need of mercy. And the bad news gets even worse in some ways in verses 9 to 14 when we see that the judgment is is darkness. And I say this because the theme of darkness relating to God's judgment is shown in two ways in verses 9 to 14. First of all, we see the presence of God's wrath, and then secondly, the absence of God's word. So first of all, the presence of God's wrath, a darkness of the presence of God's wrath. And the presence of God's judgment is the point of verses 9 and 10. The theme of the sun going down at noon and the earth darkening in broad daylight has been spoken of in similar ways in Amos before. 
But what should come to our minds as New Testament people when we read of this darkness in the daytime is what happened to Jesus Christ on the cross, where he took God's wrath on our behalf. Because all that we read of in verses 9 and 10 in this vision happened in history to Jesus Christ. Because when Jesus died on the cross, what happened to the sky in the middle of the day? It went dark, didn't it? It went dark. And then notice in verse 10, we see here words of intense grief, mourning, weeping, sackcloth, shaved heads, bitter. Now the religious festivals were supposed to be joyful times, but here... In verse 10, the religious festivals are turned upside down. And the mourning, the mourning for an only son, is the worst kind of mourning. The family line of the only son is ended. It literally is the end of the line. And notice here who instigates this. God does, over and over again. I will make the sun go down. I will turn your religious festivals into mourning. I will make all of you wear sackcloth. I will make that time like mourning for an only son. And notice who it affects, everyone, all your singing, all of you. And what I want us to see is that this is exactly what Jesus suffered on the cross. At the religious festival of Passover, a time of celebration for Israel's freedom from slavery, Jesus Christ dies as the sacrifice for our sins to free us. A time of rejoicing became, as he dies, a time of mourning and weeping and sackcloth and shaved heads and bitterness. As Jesus dies on the cross, notice who mourns the loss of his only son. The father mourns the loss of his only son as his only son dies for our sins. And he dies for all of his people. And it was the Father's will for it to happen. This is exactly what happened to Jesus Christ. And Jesus did this for us so we don't have to face this darkness ourselves. Yes, we deserve the judgment of God. You and I both, we all deserve to face it. But praise God, Jesus took it for us. He died for our sins. Every one of them. For every one of us who turned to him. That's good news, isn't it? And so we can read Amos, and and Amos is is hard. And we feel the weight of of the judgment. But as New Testament people, we realize this judgment was placed on him. If we turn to him. He reached the end of the line so we can be forgiven. And so again, I would say, ask Jesus to forgive your sins. And you need to do that now because there will come a time, even before that judgment day, that final day, when you won't be able to hear this gospel anymore. Because there is a second kind of darkness that's read about here. 
and it's the darkness of the absence of God's word. That's the theme of verse 11 to the end. Notice verse 11, it begins with, the days are coming. So this is before the final day, which is that day. So in verse 9, we read of that day. In verse 11, the days are coming. So it seems to be before the final day, there is this day, which is still a day of darkness, but a different kind of darkness, a darkness that's called here a famine. Look at verse 11. The days are coming, declares the Lord, the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. So there is a coming time, the sovereign Lord says, when he will stop speaking to his people and they can experience life without his word. And it's described here as a famine. Now, food and water are essential for our physical life. We know that we will shrivel and die without it. And in the same way, we need God's word to truly live. And if it's taken away, we will shrivel and die spiritually. That's why, by the way, we're constantly saying to each other as Christians, read your Bible and pray. For if you don't do that, you're going to shrivel up as a Christian. But here the meaning is that there is a famine because the word isn't even available. We see here a spiritual hunger and thirst that people have, but it's not being satisfied because the only thing that can satisfy is not there. I remember um, when one of our children was in the womb that my wife was craving Mars bars. Like it was really weird. And Mars bars aren't, a, it's not a weird craving, but the weird thing was it was all the time. And one time in the middle of the night, I was sent out to get Mars bars. I had to go out and, because nothing else would satisfy the craving for the Mars bar. But imagine if I went out and, and, and I'm, lo- I'm, I'm looking around and I'm thinking, I, I know that I need this, I need a Mars bar, but I have no idea where to get the Mars bar. There's just... No, I don't know where to go. It would be, I mean, it wouldn't be terrible, but it would be bad, wouldn't it? It'd be a, it wouldn't be a good thing. But for us, we're made, we are made by God to live for God. And if we're not living for him, we will have a hunger and a thirst that only he can satisfy. And it is a terrible judgment if we've got that hunger and thirst there, but we've no idea where to go to get what we really need. And verse 12 shows that kind of desperation of the, of the hunger and thirst having rejected God's word before. In verse 12, notice, they are staggering and wandering, indicating they don't even know where to look. And it's interesting, notice, they wander from north to east. North to east. That's an odd place to wander, isn't it? It's interesting because they don't go from north to south because south is where Jerusalem was. And at this time in Jerusalem, they had King Uzziah, who was a king who was doing what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And so in the south, they had the word of the Lord. But they don't wander from north to south. They go from north to east because they don't know where to go. Because they don't know where to go for the word of the Lord. 
what we see here is people wanting the satisfaction that the word of the Lord gives them, but they're looking for it in all the wrong places. And we see this in our world all the time, don't we? People staggering and wandering from one place to the next, searching for what only God can give them, but deaf to the real word of the Lord. But the tragedy here is that because they've rejected God's word so often, God says, you are not going to find it. And if you reject God over and over and over and over again, there will come a time when the thirst won't go, but his word will. And I think one of the saddest, um, I I mean, we see this all in our society today, don't we? People wandering around, not knowing even where to go to to fill that emptiness. And one of the saddest places where there's a famine in God's word today can even be the church where people can go to church and hear teaching that they think is the word of the Lord, but isn't the word of the Lord. When churches don't deal with sin and they call what what the Bible calls bad good and what the Bible calls good bad, and they're serving up empty plates for a hungry people. I think we see this in our world today, in how people are fixated on sexuality and gender or how they appear on Instagram, or on just being entertained just to numb the emptiness, wandering around, never really being satisfied, staggering from sea to sea, from north to east, and never finding what they're looking for. Can you see that today? And all of this is so tragic especially in verse 13. Look at this verse. This verse shows the impact on the young people. In that day, the lovely young women and strong young men will faint because of thirst. What's happened here is the adult's rejection of the word of the Lord results in the fainting of the next generation. As they suffer from thirst... Because their generation before has given them nothing to drink. And friends, this is the tragedy of our age. The rejection of the word of God in our generations, and I think at the moment, especially in terms of marriage and sex, has left our children literally dying of thirst. And I say literally dying because today you can see statistics that will show that anxiety and depression and suicide amongst the confused teenage generation is on the increase. Why? Because of the departure from the word of the Lord, especially in terms of marriage and sexual fidelity. I say especially that because it's the broken family that's come under attack, the family that's come under attack, and families are broken, and it's the children that pay the price always. And we're seeing it today, reaping what we have sown. So pray, pray hard for our young people and for our children. 
And pray for those in the church that work, work with them as we try and unpick so much of the evil that they're being taught in the world. When a society abandons God's word and puts fantasies in its place, there is a terrible impact on the next generation. And we're seeing it today. And then finally, in verse 14, uh, we see the places where the people are staggering and wandering to. Uh, Samaria, Dan, and Beersheba were places where false gods reigned. And the false gods who never satisfied are the false gods who fall and will never rise again. Those places will never give you what you need. Only God will. And so we need to listen and obey the good and refreshing teaching of the word of the Lord. Now we've been looking at John's gospel and Jesus there describes himself as living water. Living water. He alone truly satisfies. And while he did fall in his death, he rose again forever. He alone truly satisfies. He alone is our hope in the midst of Amos 8. For not only does he take the judgment of God on our behalf, he also, in providing us with the Holy Spirit, gives us the satisfaction we need in our lives to live day by day with God-glorifying purpose rather than self-destructive, staggering after fantasies. He is so much better than this. And so as we close tonight, let me encourage you to follow Jesus Christ. Follow him with all your heart. Don't go to Dan and Samaria and Beersheba. Don't stagger from sea to sea and north to east. Run to Jesus. And he welcomes us with open arms. And he gives us all we need to satisfy us and help us follow him. Because if you reject him, you will find it will be too late. And you'll reach the end of the line. And so tonight's an opportunity to turn to him, isn't it? Do so do so now. Well, as we close, we're going to sing uh, two songs in response. Um, first of all, uh, we're going to sing Jesus, Strong and Kind. Uh, it talks in this song about him satisfying our thirst. And just a thought, as we're thinking about how we deserve God's judgment, it's good to know that the God who is the judge is the God who's the Savior, <laughs> And he's a God who is kind. And then finally, we'll sing secondly, in Christ alone, our hope is found, which needs no other explanation, does it? So let's stand uh, and let's sing in worship of Jesus, our Savior.
Jesus said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. This is our Savior. Amen.